Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodcases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, I'm joined by Dr. Rhys Davies. Hello there. Um, so I'd like to begin by just running through the case with you. So we have Jane, who's 25 years old. She noticed double vision last week, especially when she looks to the left. In retrospect, she's been aware of a slight headache, especially in the mornings for the last three months. She's noticed the headache will worsen if she coughs, and also when she coughs, she'll sometimes notice a brief darkening of her vision. She's gained 10 kilograms in weight in the last year. On examination, she has double vision on left gaze with limited outward movement that's abduction of the left eye. Ophthalmoscopy uh, finds swelling of the optic disc bilaterally with blurred disc margins. Visual acuity is normal in both eyes. So to begin, I'd like to ask you, what is the optic disc and what cellular structures is it composed of? Uh, Okay, so if you look at the retina with uh, the ophthalmoscope, there's two key features around the middle. So one is the fovea or the or the macula um, and the other is the optic disc the fovea is the point where most of the photoreceptors and the cones in particular are found by contrast the optic disc is the 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 joining point between the globe of the eye uh, and the optic nerve so it's actually where the axons of the ganglion cells exit the eye and go on their way towards the brain via the optic chiasm. Um, And I suppose it's in terms of the cellular constituents, it's important to note that this is still a CNS structure. So the eye, unlike other apparently peripheral structures, is actually uh, a, a component of the embryonic and uh, histologic CNS uh, and that means that the uh, myelin that helps the function of the ganglion cell axons is produced by oligodendrocytes not by Schwann cells Um, and that's relevant in terms of certain diseases that affect those cells. Um, And uh, uh, so in short the optic disc is the output structure for the retina. It's composed of the axons of ganglion cells. It does not contain any photoreceptors whatsoever. So when you're assessing visual fields at the bedside, how do you refer to the optic disc? And what effect would swelling of the optic disc have on a subject's visual field? Okay, so um, I think even school um, people come across the concept of the blind spot um, and and basically that's the easiest uh, concept in relation to examining the optic disc so because there are no photoreceptors at the optic disc um, if you uh, put a a, a, a stimulus within uh, the area of the visual field corresponding to the optic disc in a particular eye in one eye or the other, then then that will not be seen. So if you have a red stimulus, then the red colour uh, won't be apparent. And of course, in normal life, we don't notice that because uh, the blind spot 
in either eye looks at a different part of the visual field and because of the integrative uh, powers of the brain. So we refer to the optic disc as the blind spot and that can be discerned if one is doing a careful examination of the visual field. There is also, um, you might say, a slightly more important feature of abnormalities of the optic discs. So actually if you've got swelling of the optic disc you tend to get a constriction of the visual field. That's not quite so easy to conceptualise but it's probably that the ganglion cell axons that serve the periphery of the retina are actually at the edge of the optic disc so kinking or some other mechanical effect of the swelling has a greater effect on those ganglion cell axons than the ones that are in the middle and because they don't work and because they serve the peripheral retina you get um, a reduced peripheral field of vision. Thanks. So swelling anywhere in the body can occur by increased fluid pressure or through cellular damage which we call inflammation. So which type is more logically, so which type is logically more likely in this case? Okay, so this is moving away from neurosensory concepts specifically, um, and this is something that applies to pathology anywhere within the body. Um, so I think let's, let's, let's think about something that's a very long way away from the eyes and, and think about the, the foot uh, or the or the leg, and um, in day to day experience of hearing about diseases, um, I think most people will have come across the idea of a thrombosis in the leg. Okay, so specifically uh, a thrombosis within one of the deep veins within your leg, which can occur for a variety of reasons after travelling, sometimes uh, after a, a medical illness sometimes or sometimes just on its own and that through water pressure through hydrostatic pressure through failure of the veins to drain the foot um, will will have um, a hydrostatic effect to cause swelling of the tissues of the foot okay and uh, uh, sometimes that's called a transudate so that the fluid that that is uh, that is resulting in that swelling, you sometimes call it a transudate. Um, and the point is that the foot itself is perfectly healthy, it's just that it's swollen because the vein is blocked. The opposite scenario to that would be if you have an infection in the skin of the foot, so cellulitis, and in that case um, the, the actual tissues are damaged and you know if you have a, a, a very severe infection of the foot so so a clostridial gangrene infection then then that can cause the foot to become necrotic with all the complications that's that's a little bit over dramatic but uh, the, the the nature of the swollen fluid in that case has high protein com, uh, constituents a high level of protein because of all the all the cytokines that are involved and because of the material from, from the infective particles, and that's sometimes called an exudate. Returning to our model, so the optic nerve, if you have 
swelling from inflammation or even infection within the optic nerve, that will destroy the optic nerve itself and cause it to stop working. So an inflamed optic nerve, we could call that optic neuritis, would have impaired visual acuity. In this case, we can infer that the nerve itself is pretty healthy, just swollen, and that implies that it's a water pressure problem, and in turn that implies that there is swelling within the cranium, raised intracranial pressure, which can be a consequence of a number of things, and the increased fluid pressure causes the optic nerve head to swell in the same way that um, a vein blockage in the foot in a deep vein thrombosis would cause um, the foot to swell. Okay, so uh, moving on, she also complains of double vision, particularly when she looks to the left. And on the examination findings, we said that there was limited outward movement uh, on left gaze of the left eye. Mm. So the left eye is going to abduct, abduct. Um, why does double vision occur? Okay, so I think there's two, there's two issues here. Why does double vision occur in this patient, in patient Jane, aged 25? Um, and why does double vision occur in general? Um, so let's, let's go first uh, on uh, the general, okay? So, so basically, in general, double vision classically occurs when the visual axis of the two eyes uh, are not in alignment. Okay, so if one eye is uh, looking where it's meant to look, where the brain has got used to thinking that it looks, um, but the other eye is looking in, in a slightly different direction, then the brain will see those as two images. Um, and so, you know, if you've if you've got a fracture of the bones of the orbit and one eye um, is, is sort of deviated from its correct position, then in principle that would cause double vision. That's, that, that sort of problem is not usually dealt with by a neurologist like me, but that would be a very simple way. More often we deal with um, situations where there's a problem with the muscles, um, that, are, that move the eye or the nerves supplying those muscles or the connection of those nerves within the brainstem. So that's the, that's the classical type of double vision and that type of double vision resolves when either eye is covered. So if the, if the eye that is in the wrong place is covered then obviously you've got the healthy eye and that means that you get one picture um, in the, the patient's consciousness in the patient's perception. But actually, if you cover the eye that is in the right position and uh, you leave the eye that, that is, you know, kind of where the, where the orbital fracture may be or whatever illness, um, you'll still see properly because you can sort of move the head to, to see what you need. So, so that sort of double vision, uh, which is binocular, that is, the double vision is only present when both eyes are open, is because of uh, a neuromuscular or mechanical problem. It is possible to get double vision 
by other mechanisms and the these are generally less common but it's worth being aware that if you've got say um, a defect in the lens of one eye that can cause a refraction problem an optical refraction problem within that eye and then you get double vision in that eye which closes which um, is uh, resolved, which which is removed by closing the abnormal eye um, or covering the abnormal eye. Um, but if you cover the good eye, then you'll still have the problem. Yeah. And actually, as a final thought, um, some brain diseases, um, so the visual processing areas of the brain, if they have lesions, then you can get all sorts of funny things. We most often call them palinopsia, but sometimes they can be reported as double vision. Okay. And then, uh, so that's double vision in general. And then sort of back to this uh, case in sure. particular. So she has difficulty turning the eye, at the left eye outwards. Um, what nerve's responsible for that? And what's special about that nerve? Okay, so abduction is subserved by the abducens nerve, which is the sixth cranial nerve. And that supplies the lateral rectus muscle that pulls... Uh, the eye uh, straight outwards. Um, and that nerve is interesting because it comes out of the brain um, quite near the bottom of the brain stem with cranial nerves 7 and 8 in the cerebellopontine angle. But it exits the skull further up along with cranial nerves 3, 4 and the upper division of five in the superior orbital fissure. So it has to travel a very long way up the clivus, the clival bone, from the bottom of the posterior fossa up to the superior orbital fissure. So, so that it means it's a long nerve. It can be subject to mechanical problems within the skull. Um, and, and also if you have a disease like a uh, an infection, a chronic infection like tuberculosis or, or other diseases within the meninges that can also cause specific damage to the sixth nerve and, and clinically that can appear exactly as if, um, as, if the, as if the sixth nerve itself was torn or if the sixth nerve nucleus had a little stroke there so so basically that has the outward appearances of a localized lesion um, but in this case actually what's happening is a diffuse problem so basically if you have high pressure within the head that's affecting the entire intracranial space or if you have an infection of the meninges that is affecting the meninges generally sometimes the only clinical deficit is an impairment of the sixth nerve and um, to distinguish it from um, localizing the disease truly to a specific corner of the nervous system we use the term false localization for that so a sixth nerve lesion is useful because it can clinically denote that the disease is located within the sixth nerve itself, but it also um, 
follows this concept of false localization so that more generalized disease can be um, can be declared or can become manifest with just a sixth nerve lesion. That's called false localization. Okay, and getting back to our case in particular, um, being aware that it could be a false localizing sign, we'll move on to talk about uh, CSF pressure and how mm. we measure that. Mm. So uh, how do we usually measure it and what factors might affect CSF pressure? And then after that, if you could let us know about in this case, what might you anticipate the pressure being and any reasons that you'd be reluctant to measure it in the usual way? Okay, so um, uh, CSF pressure is usually measured in the lumbar CSF system. So this is the pool of CSF that is located caudal to the spinal cord within the lumbar part of the spinal column. And normally um, there isn't any obstruction within the CSF circulation, and so the pressure, um, the pressure within the lumbar system is the same as the pressure throughout the CSF space, the cranium, and the rest of the spinal canal. And so that means it's much safer to put a needle and a pressure uh, measuring device, a, a manometer, which is um, just like a, a cylinder. Um, and um, so we would measure that by putting the needle um, in the um, intervertebral space in the lumbar system rather than sticking a needle into the head or the cervical spine and risk injuring the brain or the upper spinal cord. Uh, so um, there are various factors that can affect CSF pressure. So um, you can get um, alteration in the circulation. Uh, so very rarely you can get a tumour of the choroid plexus, which is the tissue that generates CSF, and that can produce too much CSF. Much more commonly, you can get um, a mechanical uh, obstruction of, of CSF, so that can be a developmental problem, or in the same way uh, as you get swelling of a foot from uh, a leg vein thrombus, you can get thrombosis of the veins within the head. Um, and then you can also get obstruction um, as, a, as, a, as an effect uh, of previous illness. So if someone has had an infection of the meninges, that can cause the drainage to slow down. So that's, that's uh, the CSF itself, but you can also get raised pressure from having too much of the other two things that are within the, uh, within the axial skeleton, within the cranium and the spinal uh, canal. So the other two main constituents are the flesh of the brain, and you can get too much of that if you had a tumour, a brain tumour, a glioma, for instance. Or you could get too much blood, and that could be a blob of blood, effectively, so that would be a hematoma. Or you could get bleeding more diffusely, for instance, into the subarachnoid space, and that would be referred to as a hemorrhage rather than the hematoma, although the words are sometimes used interchangeably. In this case, um, we've heard that the optic discs are swollen, but that the visual acuity is preserved and that means that it's hydrostatic water pressure type swelling rather than 
inflammatory tissue damage swelling. And we've also heard about this false localising sign in relation to the sixth nerve and the double vision. So that suggests very strongly that the CSF pressure in this patient should be high. Um, the right thing to do in this patient is definitely to do a lumbar puncture uh, because uh, that allows you to measure the CSF pressure and, and work out better what's happening. It also allows you to relieve the pressure and, and give the patient less headache symptom and also to reduce the likelihood of uh, damage in the long term from, from pressure. Um, but it's really important in a case like this that the patient has a CT head scan uh, as a minimum before a lumbar puncture is done uh, because if you have um, an obstruction of CSF flow at any point, you can get um, a pressure gradient between the cranium and the spinal canal. And that implies a risk of traction pressure within the system. So there's a couple of anatomical points at which it could happen, but the main one is the foramen magnum itself, the big hole at the bottom of the skull. And, and there is actually a risk that if you have raised pressure from a tumour uh, or a mechanical obstruction, that you can, by doing a lumbar puncture, you can cause reduced pressure within the spinal canal, and that can pull neural structures from the cranium into the spinal canal. That's called coning. Um, and that can result in fatal damage to the base of the brain, to the medulla. So that's, it's absolutely crucial that if you want to measure anything in the CSF, you mustn't do so if you have any concerns about raised pressure until you've done a scan. And you must also not do it if there are any neurological impairments. So that would be a focal sign. So if someone has a hemiparesis or another neurological deficit, that could also be a clue to having a tumour or a haematoma that could put the patient at risk of coning. Just a very practical point, if you have a patient with a high fever, but no neurological impairments or deficits, and no signs of papilledema or raised pressure, then actually in that situation, it could be the very best thing to do a lumbar puncture without waiting for a scan, because in that case, what you're dealing with is probably a severe infection, and you need a sample, and then to proceed with definitive antibiotic treatment as quickly as possible. So it's not correct to say that a lumbar puncture should always be preceded by a CT head scan, but a competent clinician should know when uh, a lumbar puncture must wait until after a, CT, a CT scan is done. Excellent. And I think that's something that uh, students will be 
taught again and again during again the and again. Yes, and, and it, just I guess to, to reiterate, it's not raised pressure itself that's the reason not to do the lumbar no. puncture. It's how that pressure may be distributed. Yes, it's the gradient of pressure that is a contraindication. Okay, because obviously, as, as you've implied, this lady needs a lumbar puncture as part of her diagnosis, mm. and it. And, and just to fast forward a little bit, uh, when the lumbar puncture was done, it was elevated and uh, the diagnosis by the clinician was made of a condition called idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Uh-huh. Ah, I so, suspect it. So, so what, do, what do we mean by that term idiopathic? Sorry, what does the word idiopathic mean in general and what's the origin of the word? Oh, so, um, so in this case, um, the condition is... Um, one that tends to occur in young women, uh, young women with a large body habitus, and this is a, a disorder of CSF flow whereby presumably the endocrine effects of being a female and having somewhat more adipose tissue than average um, causes a slowing of CSF drainage. Um, rather than there being something obvious that um, that the CSF pressure, uh, the, the raised intracranial pressure, can be attributed to. The word idiopathic, I think often doctors refer to uh, idiopathic as, oh, we don't know. And that's okay, because it is true that the causation of something like idiopathic intracranial hypertension is more mysterious than intracranial hypertension from a tumour. But I'm not sure that it's very professional to overstate one's ignorance. It's definitely unprofessional to uh, pretend that you know stuff that you don't, but I think it's a little bit irresponsible and undermining if we overstate what we don't know. So so the word idiopathic actually means something in and of itself. And uh, another word obviously that's commonly used is idiot. Not not commonly used for medical students, I hope. Um, but, but we often think of the word idiot as referring to a stupid person. But actually the Greek use of it was as a private person, someone who did their own thing, rather than contributing in a specific way to society in their community. So idiopathic is a, is a disease in and of itself. That's the, that's the most apposite deficit, uh, definition, rather than something that we don't know at all about. Good. Well, I think it's an excellent point to, to end the case there. So I think there's lots of uh, useful clinical learning points that, that we've discussed. Are there any sort of one or two take-home messages that you'd have for the students? So I think the sixth nerve is a bit of a hero in terms of neurological localization. So um, I think um, analysing eye movements is a difficult thing. And I think if you're really confident about... Uh, the clinical findings from a sixth nerve palsy and um, what that means in terms of localization and false localization, that's a really good start. Um, and uh, the other uh, useful thing, I think, is knowing when not to do a lumbar puncture, but also knowing when to do a lumbar puncture. Great. Thanks very much.
Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. 